You're listening to a C3 Victory podcast. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au. Hey, um, family at the campus and their greetings this morning. We kind of went up with Pete and Fiona yesterday, spent the day there and stayed for the church service and then came home so we could be with you guys. But we thought we'd let you see what our campus pastor got up to. Let's flash that one up. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, what, what's it called? Nate the Flash. Um, he took his son's mask and cape and preached a whole sermon in that. It was so hard to be serious while he's doing this, you know? So hard. Yeah, I want, I want, I want to be like you, Seb. Put the sunglasses on. I don't want, I don't want to see block the thing yeah but what he was actually saying was God doesn't use superheroes which is good I don't think there's one superhero in this building I think there's a lot of heroes but not a superhero and there is a difference they had a great time so many people there of all ages which was good and from both campuses which was incredible we can kind of move on to the next slide I think we've seen Captain Flash Nate enough or Nate Flash enough or whatever yeah get that right Nate Flash enough okay here we go Hey, you know, we just finished a great series of belonging to the Father's house. And we express that belonging. We live out that belonging. We enjoy that belonging with each other as the church. We don't come to church. We are the church. All right? And so belonging is powerful, isn't it? But belonging is not an end in itself. Deep within inside every one of us, psychology will tell there is this longing to belong. We want to be somewhere where we call home. People value us and all of that. But that is not an end in itself. That as an end in itself becomes very self-absorbing and selfish. And it's not an end in its own. I want you to think about your family for a minute. Think about this thing of belonging in relation to your family. You belong. You receive all the benefits that, that it brings from belonging, like security, comfort, encouragement, and correction. You get that? Yeah. And above all, we get love there. So, right. We receive all of that, but receiving that in the family is not the end in itself. If it were, it's a one-way street, and it's a black hole that constantly you keep filling, filling, and you never feel like they get enough. There's another side to belonging that makes relationships healthy. In a healthy relationship where you belong, you also contribute, right? What you receive, you also give. You give love, you give security, you give value, you give belonging, and you give as well. So you become someone who builds the house as someone who belongs to the house, right? Or else it's a one-way street. We need to become builders of the house that we belong to. Now, the house of God is the same. It is important that we belong, but it is equally important that we take on the mentality and the heart of builders and do that. And I think the message, which I'll I'll talk a little bit about that. I'm not going to do the the Cape Crusader thing. But the message that Nate was trying to get across that he would say to you today, and I would say to you today, you don't have to be a superhero to build the house of God. We've got to kill this myth that unless you are a professional at building the house of God, you don't have a place in building. You just belong, sit there, and be quiet like a child. Yes, like that. So... When it comes to the Father's house, it's like he's putting this banner up, calling all builders. And you went quiet. Don't go there on me today. You're too many people here to go silent. 
I'll tell you what, if you stay silent, I'll go long. If you encourage me, I'll be quick. There we go. There we go. Love it. Wow. I wonder what it'd take to wake you up. <laughs> right. Keep that going. So the deal is this. God has always, from the beginning of time, he has always looked for a people who are concerned about the state of his house in a city, in a nation. Always. I mean, he put Adam and Eve in the garden, not only to tend it, but to have dominion over it and to multiply what would happen there. To build it. To build a community of people where God would walk. You, you, you can't imagine if Adam and Eve had never fallen and they start reproducing children and the normal day of life is a walk with God. Whoa. And so God has always looked for a people. Even when they lost it, he kept looking for a people who would be his people. He calls it a kingdom or calls it his house. People who would partner with him in doing this in a city and a nation. And the deal is this. It becomes a place where we're just saying about people out there. It becomes a place where they can come and encounter the presence, the love, the grace, and the power of God. A place where they can not just belong, but they know it can become family and we are part of his family and we belong to his family and we are built up in that family, but we also help build that family. Right? So, what happens when that takes place in a city? The Bible literally says a city is blessed. Now, they don't know that. But if you took every Christian out of this city tomorrow the infrastructure of this city would start crumbling. Not because of politics or economics or sociology, but because of the presence of God himself would be withdrawn from this city. Right? That's, what, that's what's going to happen when the rapture occurs. Infrastructure starts collapsing because God's presence is withdrawn. Right. It says in Proverbs 11.10, when the righteous prosper, a city rejoices. You know, they're happy when the city's going well, and they don't even realize that the city's going well because the house of God is going well in the city, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, it, and it just blesses the city. So when it comes to building the Father's house, and three simple points, he's looking for someone who cares about this, for someone who prays about this, and for someone who acts on this. Very simple, very simple. This is not, this is not a deep theological sermon today. And... and one of my heroes in the Old Testament, he'd have to be up there with David and have to be up there with Abraham. And he doesn't get as much public notice as they got. But I reckon he was an amazing hero. He didn't know it at the time. But his name is Nehemiah. Last time I preached on this, the couple that had their first child named their son Nehemiah. So better be careful because I'm talking about Zerubbabel today. <laughs> I, had a, I had, a, had a friend at college who said, Keith, if I have a boy, I'm going to name him Zerubbabel. Isn't that the most awesome name? And then I, I couldn't think for the life of me. So how in the world do you shorten that and make a nickname out of Zerubbabel? Bubby, Zubby, Zerub, whatever. I don't know. But anyway, all right, Nehemiah, if you take your Bible turn there, I want to kind of give you some background. I'm going to take you through a snapshot of the Jewish history. It's just going to be quick. So don't get bored. No, no, history lesson. I love history. You know, I'm going to spend the first million years in heaven 
with, with a big bucket of popcorn looking at this giant screen going over everything that we thought the movies told us how it happened and God shows us how it really did happen. <laughs> I love that stuff. Anyway, anyway. Nehemiah chapter 1, before we kind of get in there, um, snapshot. God's people, starting with Abraham, enter into a covenant with him. But he also said through Moses, as long as you keep the covenant, sweet. You break the covenant, not so sweet. And the interesting thing was this. They kept breaking the covenant with God again and again and again. Now, people who say God of the Old Testament is not a God of grace, think again. He gave them hundreds of years to repent before he acted on it. Now, if that's not grace, how many of you have given your kid more than a week to make things right? Man, I told my kids, do it today or you're gone. And what's worse is I'll get rid of you and make another one just like you. So anyway, I didn't say that. Not really. But here's the deal. They would, they would kind of get right with God. And then like today, their hearts go a bit straying, you know, loving other things. And they go downhill spiritually. God sends a prophet. Boom. Get right or else. Turn or burn. Boom. They start going up again. And this went on for hundreds of years. Until finally God said, enough is enough. No more. And in 586 BC, the Babylonian army marched into Jerusalem. And they devastated the city. They leveled the homes, the walls, and even the temple. They took all the treasured holy items out of the temple and took it off to Babylon along with the people. And now the children of Israel were destined to be prisoners and slaves for a long time. Why? Apathy. Disobedience captivity. So almost 50 years into their captivity, another empire rises up called Persia. Persia marches into Babylon and overthrows Babylon. And the king of Persia says to the Jews who were there, if you want to go home, now is the time. Not all did, but some did. And they call it the first exile. And there was a first group of people, I think they even say it could have been as much as 50,000 people said, we're going back to Jerusalem. Because in the heart of a Jew, Jerusalem is where the house of God's at, right? Okay, still to this day, that's what they believe. And so here you go, under the leadership of who? Zerubbabel. Everybody say it, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. You didn't say it like I do. All right. He goes as the general and the governor to rebuild the temple. And he allows the Jews to start rebuilding their home. They start rebuilding the temple. They get the foundation done. They're all excited. And guess what? Cold of, coldness of heart and apathy settles in again. The foundation stays so barren for a few decades that even the weeds start growing up through the foundation. Ezra comes to the city. And Ezra in 458 brings revival to the exiles. He stirs them up. By the way, the temple was completed before that time, but Ezra goes as a, as a man of God and he rediscovers the Word of God with them and brings the Word of God. Revival happens in this city and they're all on fire again. The whole time though, they got the Samaritans against them and they got the Arabs against them and they're telling them they're a nobody and they're pounding them with opposition and so they stop building. They get lost in their heart. Never let opposition stop you from what God has allowed you to do. Opposition is normal. 
We sometimes think opposition is not normal, that we should live without it. It's in the midst of opposition that we become stronger and purer as Christians. Okay, just a side note. So here they are living in the city. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned. They're living in their houses. The temple is now finished, but the people's heart is still flat and dry and broken. You see, to a Jew or even to an Easterner in that time, the the gates of the city meant the place where the leaders would come and gather and they would make decisions for the welfare and the strength of the city. So when the gates are burned, it says there is no leadership for us. We are a people without any direction or purpose or guidance. We're aimless. And with the walls broken down to any city like this in the, in the, in the Near East in that day, it meant we are vulnerable. We are open. We are, we are open for attack at any moment. We are not secure. So these people are living in their homes with fear. And they're living in their homes without any direction or any guidance. And God is looking down into time going, who's going to stand up and do this? So at 444 BC, Nehemiah takes the third exile of people back. You need to understand at this moment, he is, a, he is a young man, probably only in his 20s, at latest 30s. I was going to say at oldest, but 30s not old, is it? Is it Earl? Nope. 40s not old, is it, Todd? Nope. 50s not old, who'll give me an amen? 60s not old, who'll say yes? I'm going to stop there. <laughs> yeah, I do hope I keep going. I hope I don't stop there. Okay. Here's the deal. (laughs) Nehemiah rises up nearly a hundred years after the first exiles went. A hundred years. Can you imagine that? A city still going up and down, being in ruins, no security, no safety, no direction for a hundred years. Imagine Newcastle having such an earthquake that two-thirds of the city is leveled and most of the people are gone. And only what's left is scrapping and rummaging and going through the rubble to try to exist for a hundred years with it like that. Nehemiah rises up. He says, I'm going to do something about this. Now, he's not your likely character to do this. He is no superhero. He's in his 20s, maybe earliest, latest 30s. But instead of the city being a city where the glory of God was at, it was a city in ruins. Instead of being a strong city, it was just a remnant of people left. And instead of being a place where they could go and experience God, it was a place where everything was broken down. To me, it sounds like some churches. Serious. And this brings us to Nehemiah chapter 1. That was a quick snapshot of hundreds of years of history, wasn't it? With a lot of detail left out. If you'd like, I could do the detail of history, but I know you don't like. Okay, (laughs) Nehemiah 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Susa was the winter palace of the Persian king. Hanani, one of my brothers, remember, he's under now the Persian empire. Very ungodly people. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them. That's a key. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. You know what you're seeing there right here at the beginning? You see someone who cares. 
We live in such a careless society, such an apathetic society. As long as I get me and my own and everything that belongs to me and I rightfully should have, I don't care about the rest of you. And we live in a society that is so self-absorbed, all the voting, all the... It is such a tragic that the marketing is about feeding the self, not about the people at large. What about the nation? What about the city? What about the people? Not just what about an individual. Nehemiah is somebody who said, man, tell me about them. His brother had just returned from a visit to Jerusalem where he... he he, he met with God's people and, and they're in shambles. And, and you, you need to notice something here. Nehemiah's concern was far larger than his comfort. This is the problem with most people in church today. Their comfort is far larger than their concern. Oh gosh, you missed that. You really missed that. You really missed that. I, I heard an old, well, he wasn't old. His father was old. He's a retired pastor. And... Uh, he said to his son, son, the reason we're not having revival in our nation is because no one's trying to kill us. We're just way too comfortable. And we won't have revival until we lose that discomfort. And I, I don't look for the day where the same thing's got to happen to us that happened to Judah and Israel, where God has to send some hornets to stir us up and make us uncomfortable. Oh, to God that we would find it ourselves and become concerned about the state of his house in this nation. All you've got to do is read the current stats and how the new generations view the house of God in Australia. It is not high. They're saying that there is no church stream right now in Australia that is really growing. They're getting church transfers, but they're not getting kingdom growth. Even the best ones. And the rate of people leaving the house of God is an alarming rate. And if we're not concerned about that, we sit in our holy little corner and shut the doors and sing blessed assurance until we go to heaven, we are going to miss what God wants to do in this nation. Okay, sorry, I don't want to get too much about that. But Nehemiah, you go, well, why should he be concerned? When you understand Nehemiah, he wasn't born in Jerusalem. He had never visited Jerusalem. He'd never lived there. Why should he even care less? He lives in the king's palace. He is a, a cupbearer. You get chosen for that position as a high royal position. The king's life is actually in his hands. Every time he goes to drink a, 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 it's not a glass really, I don't know what they drank out of a goblet or whatever, of wine, Nehemiah drinks it first because he has to test it to make sure nobody's trying to poison the king. So when, when Nehemiah is chosen, it's like the king is saying, son, I trust you with my life. So you better believe he had a cozy, comfortable job. Uh, it was risky. I mean, it's like working in the mines, isn't it? Every time you go down that dark hole, you don't know you're coming out. But the deal is they're going to pay you well when you do. And Nehemiah is very comfortable. Why should I be concerned? I've never been there. I'll probably never go there. I don't want to settle there. I'm here. I've got a great home. Why should I become uncomfortable? But he let his concern get greater than his comfort. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, wow. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 3. That's just two verses. It's going to take us a long time today. We're going to chapter 4. I told you, you're not cheering enough. Anyway, <laughs> verse 3. They said to me, 
Those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem, now they've been there a hundred years. So they're probably getting close to their third generation there. Because a generation in their day, in, in the ancient day, a generation went no longer than 40 years. The average lifespan of a male in that day was early 50s. Okay? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. I told you what that's all about. And when I heard these things, what did he do? Oh, well. I hate it when young people look at me and go, yeah, whatever. No, I didn't go whatever. I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Some scholars say this went for about three months. Three months. He was not looking for an easy, quick solution. He was looking for God to do something. And what we see here is that Nehemiah cared enough to weep. He didn't just go, oh, isn't that sad? And he didn't just shed a little tear. You know, he wasn't your typical bloke going, yeah, I lost my football position. He was weeping for days. Couldn't even eat. Why would he do that? He's not even born there. He's never been there. Why would he be so upset? I'll tell you why. Because the kingdom was in his heart. Even though his people hadn't been there for at least 100 and I think about 50 years, about 150, something like that, I think. It was still in his heart. People who are part of the covenant community will always have the kingdom in their heart. You can get hurt, you can get exiled, you can even get comfort, but there is a seed of something in you. Jesus said, don't look around you. Don't say it's here or there. The kingdom of God is actually within you. You just need to let that seed loose. When was the last time you cared enough about the state of God's house in our city that it actually brought you to tears? You know, I I don't think the answer is going to be found in watching the seven nightly news. Surely the politicians will do something. Surely the the CEOs of the economic society will do something. Surely somebody will do something. No, we need to recapture, surely I need to do something. We need to have a passion for the house of God in our city. And I'll tell you this, you will never be a builder of the house of God until you have a deep concern that challenges your comfort. Wow. You know why most of us never talk to the person next to us about Jesus, whether on the bus, in the gym, at a classroom, or at work? You know why? We don't want to be discomforted by being embarrassed. That is such a small discomfort. They might make fun of me. It'll hurt my pride. Well, well, well. So discomfortable, isn't it? Man, we need a little bit of discomfort today. Because what we see in Nehemiah, he didn't just care. He also was someone who prayed. And I want you to know that Nehemiah, he approached his prayer with humility and faith, not with complaining. That thing keeps flashing, doesn't it? It's catching me out the corner of the eye. Verse 5 says this, Then I said, O Lord. We'll stop there. O Lord. You know, he uses a word that is the most common word of addressing God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. The, the equivalent in the New Testament is Lord. Oh, Lord. That's why in English here it's Lord. Yahweh. You know what Yahweh was to the Jew? The relational covenant-making God with our people. That's amazing. So he starts his prayer with, oh, 
You are the one who has made this covenant with us. And then he goes on and says, oh, Lord, God of heaven. You know what he's saying there? God, you are sovereign. You are in control. You haven't lost the game. Oh, Lord, God of heaven, your sovereignty rules over all. The great and awesome God, he is saying, not only are you a covenant-keeping God, not only are you in control, but you've got all the power and the might and the majesty to pull this off. That's how he starts his prayer. Man, I hear some Christians praying, and I just go, Lord, have mercy. No wonder God gets wearied with it because it's just moaning and groaning and whinging. Why haven't you done this? And when are you going to do that? And God, what are you doing? Nothing. And you hear them pray and you go, wow, is that your view of God? I want you to know what Nehemiah does here is he puts first things first. In other words, We've got to start from a place of where we put God first with His greatness, His power, and His majesty. It's not about us, it's about Him. And even though we're concerned about the state of God in our city, we don't come to Him with a pessimistic attitude. Oh, it never works. It doesn't work. The church is doomed. It's going to die. We're going to end up like Europe. Sorry if you love Europe, but they had their day. I hope they get another one. I'm kind of wondering when God's going to say to America, you've had your day, the land of churches. You can actually track historically the moving of God across the planet. And you can see it'll shift from nation to nation. And the reason it shifts is when a nation's coldness has been too long. And they reckon it's heading around the planet so it ends up where it started. Just a theory. But I wonder when our day would be over, if ever. I hope to God never. But we don't come with pessimism. We don't come accusing him of doing nothing. So many people, well, if God was God and he was in control, why doesn't he? And I go, yeah, but if you were a real person made in the image of God, why did you? Why are you blaming him? You pulled the trigger. Anyway, I don't like that stuff. We come with adoration of God and a declaration that he is mighty. He is in control. We've got to have our head in the place that God is still God. Because if we move from that place, who is God? What is God? Just asking a question. Verse 6. Keeps going in the prayer. It gets deeper. Let your heart be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, the, the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. This was not a quick 30 seconds. You know. Lord God Almighty. Holy God. Do it, and then you go off with your business. Day and night. Prayed for the servants, your, the people of Israel. Now watch this next bit. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Did you know that brokenness is attractive to God? Bible says, a broken and a contrite spirit you will not despise, O God. Brokenness is attractive. And you know what's so amazing about this brokenness? Nehemiah didn't commit the sins. He didn't cause the people to go into bondage. Neither did his father. He's three generations from the exile. 
Maybe his grandparents didn't do too well, but, but you know what he's doing here now? Because the kingdom is so deep in his heart, he identifies with the people of the kingdom who did sin. It's called identification repentance. When's the last time we said, oh God, we are so sorry for the sins of our people in this nation. I didn't commit them. Why should I repent? You should repent because of the people of God in this nation. He doesn't point the finger, you know, in his comfortable, he's, he's standing in his comfortable place pointing a bony finger. Them, they did it. They deserve everything they get, God. I know Christians with that attitude when somebody sins. Them, they did it. They deserve everything they get, God. Careful. Judgment belongs to him and him only. No, he's not standing in his lofty, comfortable place. He's on his knees in a quiet place, confessing, pleading with humility. Oh, God. See, the deal is this. When prayer is mixed with humility and brokenness, it catches the attention of God and it moves the heart of God. Why would God even listen to a guy like Nehemiah? He's serving a pagan king. Why would he listen? Because of his brokenness, his humility, his genuine concern for the house of God in God's city. And it's amazing who God will use at that moment. You know, both Janet and I have been talking for a while. We believe, guys, it's, it's time to pray. Listen to me. I remember one of my mentors at university said, you know, the, the two most meetings that are least attended by people in church are the prayer meeting and the missions meeting. He said, you know, walking into church and saying, prayer anyone is like walking into a convalescent ward where people are paralyzed and going, tennis anyone? That's rude. I know it sounds rude. But I think it's just as rude for Christians to not care enough to pray. And it's interesting. Janet and I, we believe, you know, we say our vision says, you know, right now it's time for growth and it's time for influence. And the greatest asset we can have for this vision is prayer. The only weapon we have, apart from having the Word of God, the only offensive weapon that we have is prayer. It's by prayer we pull down strongholds. Now, I'm not interested only in the strongholds in my mind. I'm interested in the strongholds of my city. Okay. And we believe it's time for prayer. We're, got, we're calling the church to prayer soon. And you find it interesting that the book of Nehemiah opens with prayer and closes with prayer. And this is the first of 12 instances of prayer through a book that's about building walls. Isn't that amazing? Well, he just, he's a tradie. Go build the walls. Well, number one, he's not a tradie. He's a white-collar worker. He's not even qualified to build a wall. Like, if you ask me, Keith, go build a wall some bricks, it'd be the worst wall and the most unstable wall you'd find in the city. I mean, I can pick up bricks and I can hold bricks. And I was out there kicking Aussie rule f- football with the young guys yesterday. Paying for it today, but I did it yesterday. I could build you a wall, but I'm telling you, it wouldn't last long. Nehemiah is not qualified. Verse 8 says this. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But, oh, don't you love the big but of God? I don't mean that funny. That is a very significant word, but. 
if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. I'm telling you, there are people all over this city who have already been marked and chosen and at one time believed in God. It is time to call them home. And I'm telling you, standing on a soapbox and preaching at them is not going to call them home. Getting on our knees and repenting for them will bring them home. Okay. They're your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. You see, the prayer of Nehemiah praise is one of repentance, return, and redemption. It's his job to repent and to pray, but it's God's job to buy them back. Right? When we pray, God works. Prayer is not only necessary, it's essential with action. It's not enough just to pray. Nehemiah didn't just stay in the closet praying. If you go, I'm a prayer closet person, awesome, but come out of the closet. It's time to come out. I don't mean it that way. It's time to come out. Don't they take stuff that we think is good and they pervert it? Come out and do something. Get off your knees and work. I'm not saying don't pray, but I'm saying act also. Nehemiah asked God to act on behalf of his people, but he doesn't stop there. Do it through me, God. Do it through me. Because Nehemiah is someone who acts. Watch what he prays. It's like, I'm going to be the answer to my own prayer here. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to this prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants. So he's gone, from, he's gone from adoration of God to brokenness of himself and his people to now a declaration, you're gonna do this because you promised to do this, but now do this through me. And he says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, we're Westerners, we don't understand this. He is working in the court of the king. When he says this man, if you read other translations, he's saying, give me favor or success with the king. Now you need to understand one wrong bad attitude. It's like Esther prayed hard before she went into the presence of the king. She called the people to prayer and fasting before she went to the king. But it was her uncle that said, but God has brought you to this place for this time for the kingdom of God. And then get it ready through prayer. If Nehemiah walked in there and he's all teary and he just sips the wine, throws it at the king, even if he walks in there and says, I don't want to work for you anymore, I want to go to Jerusalem, the king would drop him like a bad habit quickly. Why? Because he had the power of life and death. So he says, but God, you hold the hearts of kings in the palm of your hand. Give me success today with this man. You'll read later. I want to encourage you over the weeks to come, slowly read through Nehemiah. The success he had, by the way, I'll just run forward a little bit. He did go to Jerusalem. He called the people together and in the face of opposition, they built the wall all the way around Jerusalem in 52 days. Something the people hadn't done for a hundred years. Isn't that amazing? When you've got God on your side, it's amazing what you can do. You know, Nehemiah could have stood back and went, you know, I'm, I'm not a brick worker. I'm not a tradie. I'm not qualified. God, I'm not qualified. 
I love what Stephen Furtick said in his book, Unqualified. He said this, God doesn't call the qualified, He qualifies the called. I, I didn't become a pastor because I went to university. I went to university because God had already called me to preach His Word. And let's not get it back to front. I'm not qualified to build the house of God. That's for you professional people. We'll just pay you, pray for you, and listen to you. Ah, come out. Come out. Come out. God's calling all builders. You have a part to play in building the house of God in this city. And you might think you're unqualified. Some of you might even think, stuff, I'm disqualified. Don't talk about unqualified. I'm disqualified. Nehemiah didn't say I'm disqualified. He said, God, give me favor. You notice this last statement he said? I was cupbearer to the king. What do you think he meant by that? I'll tell you exactly what he meant by that. Number one, being a cupbearer doesn't make me a bricklayer. However, or even a city leader. However, being a cupbearer means that God has placed me in a position of favor for such a time as this. So give me success. And it's interesting. I love what Wearsby said in his commentary. When God wants to accomplish a work... He always prepares his workers and puts them in the the right places at the right time. Wherever you are at, the neighborhood you live in, the school you work at, the job you have, the, the, the place in university, the gym you go to, wherever. Isn't it interesting we live in a mobile society where at the drop of a hat we are quick to move or leave something to go to another thing not realizing I have been placed here for such a time as this. And if God has called you and placed you here, He will then qualify you and equip you there so that together you can reach the city for the kingdom of God. Thanks for joining us for the C3 Victory Podcast. We would love to see you at one of our services. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au or check us out on Facebook or Instagram.